John chapter 2, 13 to 25, and I'm reading from the, uh, the NIV, New International Version. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. He probably said it a lot more forcefully than that. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then Jesus responded to him, what sign can you show us? Sorry, the Jews then responded to him. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believing in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Thanks, Jason. Well, good morning again. And to those I haven't met, visitors in the room, great to have you uh, I'm on the staff team. And if you haven't, you've heard this phrase, the prayer room. Uh, it's 750 metres down the road that way. And uh, that's where you find our staff and our, our prayer room uh, throughout the week. So please come and visit us there if uh, you want to find out more about who we are. I'm going to read. I'm, I'm going to get you to imagine with me uh, what Blair's just read, a little bit of a slower pace. So if I can have my reading music come on, please. And... Uh, I've, I've taken a devotional book I have at home called Moments with the Saviour. I've edited it a little bit and uh, want us to explore this scene together. So we're, we're in story mode. It's a true story, but with poetic license, imagining this scene on that Passover as Jesus comes to the temple. So consider it with me. Every Passover, every Jewish house went through a ceremonial spring cleaning. And cupboards were scrubbed to the corners and walls to the ceilings. Floors were swept and re-swept. But all the sweeping and scrubbing wasn't to get rid of dirt. It was to get rid of yeast. For Passover, during Passover, possession of even the smallest amount of yeast was forbidden. And the law was specific and the penalty was strict. So the removal of yeast was serious business. It was a serious reminder, reminding every Jewish family of the exodus, of that hurried departure in the middle of the night, of the rushing to bake bread for the journey. And since there was no time to wait for the dough to rise, yeast was removed from the recipe. And from that time on, removal of yeast became part of the Passover tradition. The night before the Passover meal, the father would light a candle, lead the family in a final inspection. Every corner was examined, every drawer, every utensil. It was a solemn ceremony. Any yeast that was found or any food containing yeast was put in a designated place and destroyed. So every Passover, 
every Jewish house was immaculate. Every house except one. In the hurry of preparing for the holiday, one house had been overlooked, the house of God. Now Jesus has come to this house every Passover since he was a young child. Every year this house has looked a little different as King Herod's extravagant renovations slowly unfold, expanding the buildings and impressing the worshippers. Not that Herod was interested in worship. Herod just wanted to leave a landmark legacy, a temple testifying to his own greedy greatness. But Passover could be a profitable time in Jerusalem. Rooms rented out, sacrifices sold to pilgrims from afar, so they could bring an offering to God as the law instructed. So buying and selling was not a crime. If you were traveling from a distance, it was very helpful to be able to buy the, the animal at the temple. But it was the way it was done and where it was done. In this scene, it's the hustle and the bustle and the clutter and the distraction that stabs at the spirit of Jesus as he makes his way through the temple courts. The buying and selling took place in the temple's courtyard. The inner courtyard was reserved for the Jews. The outer courtyard was set aside so Gentiles, so non-Jews would have a place to come and pray. And notice this, the very design of the temple reflects Israel's mission of outreach to the world, of gathering people from every tribe and nation within its gates, giving them access to God and an opportunity to become part of the family of faith, the Father's house. But at this Passover, when Jesus enters that courtyard, he sees no light leading a lost world to God. The smothering activity of this holiday has all but snuffed it out. His eyes peer through the stately colonnade. In the shadows he sees a Gentile, off by himself, his eyes closed, his head bowed, his hands clasped in prayer. And nearby a stack of coins tumbles to the floor, creating a scramble for the loose change. A money changer pushes his way into the frenzy. One of the men he pushes stumbles into the Gentile and his prayer is interrupted. The money changer dives to the ground, reaching between people's legs, rooting out his profit from underneath stubborn sandals. Now money changers, they serve to keep the temple coffers unsoiled from foreign coinage. Every Jew had to pay at the treasury an annual tax of half a shekel, but only specially minted coins were accepted for payment, coins that were kosher. So perhaps the exchange rate fluctuated with the character of each money changer. The lower the character, the higher the rate of exchange. We're not sure, but we know that besides the clink of shekels, sounds of animals filled that courtyard. Animals sold for sacrifices and for Passover meals and with the animals came the smell of dung and urine. A wave of nausea washes over Jesus as he takes this all in. But it's not the stench of the animals. It's the stench of religion 
gone bad that sickens him. And Jesus looks again at that Gentile who's trying to squeeze out a little solitude. But again, his prayer is cut short, this time by someone brushing past him with a squirming lamb slung over their shoulder. And Jesus' nostrils flare, his jaws clench. Draped across the table is a handful of cords, and he snatches them up and begins to tie them together. Minutes pass. He works with intention. This is not losing his temper. This is strategy. His heart is a pounding fist as he pulls the knot tight. And can you imagine it? He swings the whip. A circle of men recoil. Confusion mapped in every wrinkle of their faces. Jesus kicks over a table, sending people tumbling backward, their money skipping along the marble floor. He pulls down a makeshift fence and another smack of his whip sends a dozen lambs bleating for cover. He goes down the road, picking up the ends of tables and heaving them over. He whirls his whip overhead and men scatter like leaves before this whirlwind of a man as the wrath of heaven funnels down to the earth, upending everything in its path. And Jesus storms through a tenement slum of bird cages with a hail of words for the man guarding them. Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? The anger is torrential. The disciples step back from the downpour. And as they do, they remember scripture. Now prophetic. Zeal for your house will consume me. That Passover, when Jesus came to the temple, he came to clean house. From the slender candle of his life flamed a zeal so intense it exposed that yeasty clutter that was doing up every corner of the courtyard. And his whip was merely the wash rag to remove it. Today's zeal for his father's house consumed him. One day it would kill him. Zeal for the father's house. Pray with me for a moment. Father, we, we come a spiritual house, a people purchased by your blood, made to be a royal priesthood, made to stand in your presence. And we ask you, Father, for a spirit of revelation. We ask you to speak to our hearts this morning. We thank you for your word. Have your way here among us now. Amen. So that's John 2. We're in our Meet Jesus series. Last week, Wayne was at the beginning of John 2, where Jesus is Lord of the wine, the water into wine. And now here we are with Jesus, Lord of the whip, zeal for the Father's house. Two things I want to touch on as we go through this next 20 minutes or so. The first one, what is it about the Father's house that provokes such a strong reaction, a strong response from Jesus? What is it about? the Father's house, and this zeal for God's house. And the second thing is to ask us the question, when Jesus comes to this spiritual house, you and I, is he going to find a marketplace or is he going to find a resting place? So that's where we're going this morning. Uh, you heard in the Bible reading that the disciples, at some point in that disruption, things scattering, 
people outraged, upset, confused, they remember this verse from Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal, that word that means passion, fervor, means you're all in. Zeal has consumed me. So David wrote that in Psalm 69. David wrote, he wrote this in Psalm 69. He said, I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children, for zeal for your house consumes me. That's intense. I'm a foreigner to my family. I'm a stranger to my own mother's children because of this zeal. And the insults of those who insult you, God, they fall on me. And when I weep and I fast, I must endure scorn. And when I put on sackcloth, which is the the clothing of mourning and fasting and prayer, people make fun of me. So you can hear the intensity in that. And that's what they are remembering. Remember when the the Bible quotes a verse uh, in the New Testament, they're quoting from the Old Testament. In the Jewish worldview, they've been trained as young men to remember passages of Scripture. They're not just uh, plucking a verse out. So when it says, they remembered this verse, zeal for your house consumes me, they're remembering the story of David, a man who was so burning with jealousy to be near God, to pursue God, that it offended the people around him, caused disruption, it caused mockery, it caused scorn. And David had tapped into the same vision Jesus has when he sees the Father's house. So let me speak for a few minutes about David, because that's the comparison that John 2 gives us. Jesus has this zeal. David was an ordinary man like us. I mean, he's a king. But, you know, besides that, pretty ordinary. Just the leader of a national army. Um, But but ordinary in the sense that he's not a priest. He wasn't uh, given the position of the high priest. There was one high priest, and his job was to stand in the presence of God as a representative of the whole nation. And he wasn't one of the other priests who did the, kept the, 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 the ministry of worship going, the sacrifices and all these things. In that sense, David was ordinary in his, his vocation. He wasn't in the priesthood, but he lived this priestly life where the presence of God was his priority. And as a king, as a governor, he went to great lengths to establish God's presence as the center of his nation. And so we know verses like Psalm 27.4, if I can have that on the screen. Psalm 27.4, one thing. We know this verse, if you've been around New Life, we often quote it. One thing. If you're choosing one thing, you're saying no to a lot of other things. But David said, one thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This is the zeal David has. Uh, Another psalm I love, Psalm 132, which we often refer to as David's vow. David's vow, Psalm 132, it says, someone else wrote this after David had died, but they're remembering him. as They say, he swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. So there's this thing of finding a place for the Lord, finding a dwelling 
for the Lord. One thing I asked that I would be in his presence, in his temple, gazing on his beauty. And David's saying, I am setting my life to find a place for the Lord, a resting place. I'm not just settling down to enjoy my house. David was wealthy. This is the golden age of Israel under his leadership. Expansion of the nation, huge amount of resource, opportunities to do whatever he wanted to. But David's connected to the Father's house and it's the same vision that Jesus had. When Jesus saw that temple and that Passover, it's supposed to be the physical expression of a connecting point between heaven and earth where God has a resting place, but instead it's cluttered, full of stuff. It's become a marketplace. So for David, it was really personal. For Jesus, this is really, really personal. This is my father's house. He comes to that temple. And imagine you've been away from your home for a few months. You've been traveling. Remember those days when you used to travel? And you've come back. And someone who's supposed to be the caretaker of your home has invited a bunch of strangers and they've turned your house into a hoarder's house and every room is cluttered, floor to ceiling, you can barely get in the door and it's no longer a home, it's no longer your house, it's no longer a place where you can rest, it's, it's just a mess. Right? For Jesus, he's coming to the temple as a Jewish man to connect with his father to join the nation in this this annual uh, celebration of of who they are as God's people to come and to worship and for him he knows this is my father's house and he finds clutter he finds no resting place he finds a market so this is the scene how dare you turn my father's house into a market now sometimes we use that phrase Oh, I feel so at home here. Well, this is my home away from home. Have you ever said that? Can you think of a place where it's not your home, but when you go there, it's just you can just breathe. It's like, ah, oh, I feel like I'm at home here. Like I can just be myself. I can rest. Well, this is what Jesus is looking for in the temple because this is what the Father is looking for on the earth. He's looking for a home. He's looking for a resting place. And this is one of the great themes of Scripture. And I love, I love these overarching themes that help us read the details of our Bible and it begins to make sense. And this is one of those themes when I read Genesis and Exodus and then get into the kings and the building of the temple. This is, the theme, this is an essential theme you need to know to have understanding of where the story is going, is that God wants a resting place, his presence with people in his creation. So let's do a quick historical tour because I want you to get this. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, in the beginning, God puts humanity in a garden. And it's actually a garden temple. If you study it out, the, the, the themes and the language and the ancient context, it's filled with this this image of it, it's not just we're landscapers, we're gardeners. It's a temple. We're, we're caretakers for the presence of the Lord in this garden. So you could call it a garden temple. And in the beginning we find priests. The text doesn't say they're priests, but they're given the function of priests. And remember when we talk about priests, we're not talking about 
uh, a certain type of clothing and, and modern man-made tradition and religion. We're talking about people created with access to God, people who know God and represent God to creation. So we find priests in this garden temple, Adam and Eve. They're called to know God, to be in God's presence, and they're given this assignment to represent him to creation. So we also find the first missionaries back in Genesis. Again, it's Adam and Eve, and their job is to expand. Did you know the garden, it was a a geographic place, but the intent was it would expand and touch the whole world, the, the whole of creation under the leadership of people in intimacy with God, would become this beautiful place of God's presence. So here in the beginning, God is looking for a resting place. Fast forward through the tragedy of the fall, where everything gets broken and where we suffer the trauma of that still today. Humans don't work as they were originally designed to work. Creation doesn't work as it was originally designed to work. The good news is it will be restored. But we fast forward to the exodus And without going into great details, the family of Abraham has become a nation, the nation of Jacob, now called Israel. This family is freed from slavery in Egypt. They come to this mountain, Mount Sinai, and they are given, like Adam and Eve, a priestly assignment. You are my chosen ones who have access to my presence. This is is the great privilege Israel is given. And like Adam and Eve, they're given a missionary assignment. So you are to be people of my presence who know me, who share that with all the nations around you. And by the way, that's still Israel's calling a destiny today. So God gathers the nation around his presence. And if you know the story, he literally sets them in tents. Remember, they're traveling as slaves. They're on their way to a promised land that they don't know about yet. He sets them in tents around this mountain. Literally, the presence of God comes down in the center and shakes this mountain with fire. This dramatic uh, situation you can read in Exodus 19. And this is where he gives them assignment. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Remember where we're going today. We're, We're still in John 2. We're still meeting Jesus. He's got zeal for his father's house. What's the father's house all about? This is the backstory. So God's looking for a resting place. So he's chosen a people. He's saying, I want to dwell with you. Now that's going to require some things of you because if you just try and come into my presence as the holy God who created all things in a casual way, that's kind of like trying to fly your airplane into the sun. It is not going to work well. But here is how I'm giving you access to my presence. And we, we have the beginning of the, the formal priesthood and the system of sacrifices and this special tent, the tent of meeting. We call it the tabernacle of Moses. And he says, there are ways for your leaders and your priests to come to me because I want to be with people on the earth. And I want that to consume the whole earth. I want all of creation to be caught up in my presence and enjoying the goodness of who I am as a father. So God is looking for a resting place. And he's chosen Israel to be his priestly, missionary people to take that into all the nations of the earth. The Great Commission is right there in Exodus. It's not just a Jesus is about to go up to heaven thing. The Great Commission, it goes all the way back. It was always in God's heart for the nations to be caught up in this story of intimacy with him.
So you're tracking with me? Are you okay? We've gone from Eden, God's resting place, tragedy, to now a nation, Israel, God's resting place. I want you to live a certain way to reveal me to the nations. They come to the promised land. They come into Jerusalem as the center of the nation. We come back to King David. Now they've got this little mobile tabernacle, this tent. They have to carry it literally on their backs through the desert. The relief when they could just set it up and leave it for weeks and months and years must have been uh, significant. They established this little tabernacle, this little tent. And David, that Psalm 69 guy, that guy with zeal for God's house, that guy who gets it, that we need the presence of God to be our priority as a nation. This is what the story is all about. I told you before, his lead, under his leadership was the golden age of Israel, which meant he had billions of dollars at his disposal in terms of uh, money today. It meant he had thousands of people that he could direct. So what does he do? He invests billions of dollars into a worship and prayer movement that operates night and day. He puts singers and musicians, hundreds of them, you can read it in 1 Chronicles, I think 19, around there. He sets them before the presence of God because he knows this is the priority of the nation. This is who we are to be as people. This is when we can live rightly, where we can function according to our design when the presence of God is our priority, when God has a resting place among his people on the earth. And then we go on to the the temple that gets built, the beautiful structure in Jerusalem that we know as Solomon's temple, a beautiful physical place that's to represent God wants to connect with people on the earth, heaven and earth meeting. And it's filled with beautiful imagery that provokes our imaginations back to Eden. If you study it out, there's this symbolism that's supposed to catch us up in the beginning of the story. Oh, yeah, remember there was that garden temple? Remember this is what God wanted all along? So there's imagery that provokes the worshippers, the priests as they come in. Yes, this is the story we're a part of. We're not just doing, you know, what's the, the top ten worship songs this week? We're doing... No, this is from the beginning. God desires a resting place. So all that to say, if you're still with me, when it says in John 2, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? This is the context, okay? It's not about, oh my goodness, your ox just did a thing on the floor of my father's house. Now it's dirty. I'm upset. Okay, this is not about churches getting coffee stains on the carpet. That's not what this marketplace issue is about. The, the issue is this is to be the resting place of the creator God on the earth and you've made it a market. You've cluttered it up with stuff. And this is what provokes such a strong reaction from Jesus. How dare you? This isn't about, oh, this cute little temple in Jerusalem. This is about the story of humanity, the story of heaven and earth and where it's all going, God dwelling with people. That's what the temple ministry was supposed to be about. So these themes help us understand where the story is going and they, they help us understand people like Isaiah, if we can have those scriptures up. Isaiah 66, that 
God says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word, which is pointing us to the fact that it's not actually about a cool building. It's actually about a people gathered in humility, in repentance, in trembling. These are the ones. This is the resting place. I want to dwell with the people. God says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Remember I said Israel had a missionary assignment. Their job was to take the presence of God into the world, to invite the nations to come back into the family of God. So we find Jesus here in the court of the Gentiles. Can I have that King Herod's big temple? Yeah, that one. Obviously, this is not a real photo from a real drone that was flying around when Jesus was there. But it gives you an idea of the scale. So it's not like Jesus is running around a room like this flipping tables. Somewhere over here or over here, it's a big space. If you can see the doors, you can imagine this is quite a walk to get through it. So I don't know where Jesus went exactly in that space, but it's a big space and it was cluttered up as a market. And here is God in the flesh, God who desires to dwell among people, flipping tables with zeal for the Father's house. It's supposed to be the house of prayer for all nations, that court of the Gentiles is supposed to be the place, it's the entry point where you can say, come with me. As a, as a Jewish man, you can say to your mate, come with me. God's got a calling for your nation. You're supposed to be in his presence. This is a place where you can come and get to know God, except there's cows in the way, except there's lambs in the way, except there's money changers saying, get out of my way, I'm trying to count my coins. So prayer has been crowded out. There's a marketplace. Instead of nearness, there's noise. Instead of humble service to help the nations, the foreigners come in and encounter the God of Israel, there's a hustle to get the best deal. Instead of devotion, distraction. So we know what Jesus does about this noise, the hustle, the distraction that people have allowed in. So we come to that question I posed at the beginning of If we apply this, bring this into the reality that Peter talked about when he said, well, you're the living stones of a spiritual house being built so that you can be a priesthood. What's Jesus going to find in this house? In a few weeks, we'll be in John 4 as we continue our way through the book of John. And in John 4, Jesus is going to say to the Samaritan woman, the time is coming. When people will worship the Father, not on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, the true worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, the temple ministry, the connection of heaven and earth, it's going viral. It's going through the nations. It's no longer limited to one geographic space. I'm doing something that people in every nation will have access to my presence. They can come. Jerusalem still has a special place in the story and where it's all going. But every nation, in every nation, they'll be worshipped. Malachi 1 says, incense will arise, pure offerings 
from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same. In other words, this is going viral. This is going to every nation. Everywhere the sun is rising, there's going to be pure offerings. Everywhere the sun is setting, there are going to be pure offerings. As far as I understand science, and that means everywhere is covered. There's going to be worship in the nations. And it's, so it's, it becomes more than just this building in Jerusalem. It becomes about wherever people are welcoming Jesus, where, wherever we have Isaiah 66 people, humble, contrite, trembling at his word, that becomes the temple ministry. That becomes the priestly ministry. Remember in this, the account that Blair read for us, they get upset. Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And they say, this taken 46 years. I mean, this, it didn't look as pretty as that last picture. It would have been scaffolding. It would have been building. Every time Jesus would have gone throughout his life, it was a renovation project. It went on for decades. In fact, it was only just completed in the 60s, and then it was smashed to the ground in 70 AD. But this, this temple, oh, that's right, his response to them, he says, destroy this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. They say, it's taken 46 years. How are you going to rebuild this temple? And basically he says, I am the temple. You want to talk about rebuilding the temple? I am it. In other words, I am the connecting point. I am where heaven and earth meet. You come to me and you get to enter into that reality of God resting among people. I am the temple. So all that to say that we don't have to imagine how it was for them as worshippers of Passover going on pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. Now we get to think and investigate, okay, so when Jesus comes to me, when like Revelation 3 says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, will anyone hear, will anyone let me in? This is the question, what's he going to find? You can see the application, can't you? And can you see the fact that if he's willing to flip tables in Jerusalem, he's willing to bring disruption in my life because he has zeal for his father's house. Can you see that? That theme of a resting place that goes all the way through the scriptures. Can you see if he has zeal for that? Yes, in, earlier in John 2, he was the guy who got the party going at the wedding. They ran out of wine. He turned water into wine. He's the, the Lord of the wine, but he's also the Lord of the whip. He's the, the, the one who will come and fill your table with the abundant goodness of God, but he's also the one who will come and flip your table to get your attention to say, hey, this is not okay. You're not living in accordance with what you were designed for. You're made for so much more, and I as your creator, I have zeal to be with you. I'm looking for a resting place in you, my people. This is the house. This is now my father's house. This is now my priesthood. All who would come to me, I'm looking to be at home in you. He's longing to come to us and say, oh, I feel so at home here. No longer striving, no longer contending with clutter. Coming into our internal world and the Holy Spirit not trying to find a spot in there 
amongst other things, but being central to who we are. Jesus has zeal to do this in our lives. So are we a marketplace or a resting place? A couple, a couple of applications before I wrap this up. It's a season for decluttering, and the gift of the sacred assembly we've been talking about is that it gives us time as a community to engage in that in a focused way. So the invitation is to, to start a conversation now in our households. How can we declutter for this 21-day season? But it's, about, it's bigger than that as well. It's about how can we position ourselves to be a resting place where he's not striving with us, but he's resting among us. So that invitation is there to, to gather together, to commit, to show up, to engage in some fasting, eating less and doing less in order to be with him more, to be the Psalm 27.4 people that we've spoken of so many times over the year. And if you're, if you're visiting, if you're new into this community, that same invitation is for you, to be the one thing people. And again, saying yes to one thing is no to many other Normal things. Decluttering our lives from these normal things. It's going to provoke people. When we get radical, people get nervous. People get uncomfortable. That's what Psalm 69 was. David was saying, I'm scorned. I'm mocked. I'm the song of the town drunk because of my zeal for the Lord's house. But are we willing to go to that place? For, for my household, it, it's been a journey on, we're on, and we, we certainly have not mastered it, but we're aware that you know, we want to live light. We want to live uncluttered. People say that about our physical house sometimes. They come over, and we've been accused of being minimalists, which I'll take that. I don't mind that. But it's true. In my house, if, if new stuff comes in, something else has got to go. We're, we're not into like hanging on to things. We like it clean. We like it clear. We like a, a nice space where you can breathe. And in our spiritual life, that's also what we're wanting to cultivate with our kids, with our spending patterns. It means we may not do normal things. The way we use our time, it may not be normal. But if we as a family want to be a one-thing family, if we want to be a resting place, we can't afford to just settle for normal in terms of our culture. We're going to have to get some zeal for the Lord's house and, and go a different way. And, and the beauty is we have friends and family here around us. We, and we want to do it together. We want to be his resting place together. So what's it look like to declutter the house? A couple of things before we close with prayer. The personal application of this resting place is that we live lives of intimacy with Jesus talking to the Holy Spirit during our day, engaging with the Bible daily, choosing to worship. Here's one example, the clutter of media, the marketplace of media in our lives. And many of you know this, but it just creeps back in. So pay attention again. Is there a resting place or has the news, entertainment, social media 
cluttered up your life that that's what you wake up thinking about, that that's the last thing on your mind. You know, one of the things practically, I know I'm in a healthy space in terms of wanting to be that resting place for the Lord is what's the last thing on my mind at night? And when I wake up in the morning, this happened to me this past week, I woke up thinking about some other things, some things I'd been involved in during the week and uh, things I'd been watching the night before, not bad things, but I just woke up and I felt convicted and I was like, oh Lord, I want you to be the first thought on my mind. I don't want to be processing yesterday's entertainment. And that's not a hard and fast rule, but that's just a personal example. If I know that when I wake up with a song or I wake up with a verse or I wake up and my first thought is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's the place I want to live in. I don't want to be cluttered with media and news and and, and other things. So the marketplace of media, when we say I'm so busy, it's so hard to get to my Bible, it's so hard to get to the prayer room, is that an accurate statement or is that a statement that media consumption is more precious to me than friendship with the Holy Spirit? Is there so much media in my life, so much traffic that I can no longer hear the promptings of the Holy Spirit? I know I'm laboring this example, but this is a huge issue, isn't it, in our world? And this is a huge driver of anxiety and depression and fear because we're paying more attention to that noise than the voice of the Holy Spirit. He so wants friendship with you. He so wants moment by moment conversation with you. And we don't have to go on a pilgrimage to find him. He dwells within us. He desires to make his home in our hearts. There are other examples just Quickly, the marketplace of, of my house, my affairs, my comfort. Remember Psalm 132, David said, I'm not going to my house, I'm not going to sleep until I find a place for the Lord. People will say, well, you need balance in your life. But you know, if you want to pray the one thing prayer, one thing I desire, this is what I seek, there's not a lot of balance in that. There's not actually a lot of balance in Philippians 3 when Paul says, everything else I count a loss, I count rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And we want wisdom in our lives. But balance, beware of balance as a cover-up for, I need plan B because I can't actually trust myself to be all in for Jesus in case it doesn't work out. That's not Christianity. That's... That's called rolling the dice. And hope, you know, maybe here, maybe there. I don't know. Let's see where it goes. No, we take up our cross. We follow him. What about my reputation? The marketplace of my reputation. Does Jesus come in to find me longing for him or am I more concerned about what will people think of me? If I get radical, if I do the stuff with the Bible, what will people think? Zeal for God's house equals pushback from people around us. People get nervous, but it is truly wisdom. I want to close this out to make, make some space to pray together, to sing together, because the Lord is looking for a resting place. And this month heading to Sacred Assembly, it's going to be, it's going to be a special season as a, as a family, as a church family, and you're all invited to get on board with that, to show up and position ourselves in weakness, in compromise, 
in past failures and say, Lord, it's crept in. It's so cluttered in my soul. I don't even long for you right now, but I want to. So help me. Lord, give me a higher vision than temporary comfort, than ordering things around the affairs of my house, my world, my pursuits, my hobbies, my income, my relationships, looking good, whatever it is for you. This morning, I just invite you to take a moment and ask, Holy Spirit, show me my reality. Make me sensitive again. Make me tender to your promptings. Make me sensitive to your voice and show me how to declutter. I want to be a resting place. I don't want to have a marketplace crowding out this sanctuary in me. Guys, it's it's personal, it's individual, but it's also us together as a family. God's looking for a people. God's looking for a bride for his son. So we do it together. We encourage one another on the journey. There's no condemnation for falling short. There's just invitation to repent, to get up, to go again, to say, yes, I want to be all in, Lord. Isaiah 66, where is the house you'll build for me? Where will my resting place be? This is the cry of the Father's heart. He wants to dwell with us. He dwells with those who are humble, contrite. Those who mourn over their sin. Those who say, I don't have it all together, but I want to say yes to you. Those who tremble at his word. Oh God, help us to be a people engaged in your word. To not take it for granted. The access we have to the scriptures. The access we have to your presence through the blood of Jesus. Help us not to become over-familiar. Just make it one thing among many. Jesus, be our one thing. Father, I ask for a revelation that there's no greater pleasure than knowing and loving you. God, bring us into that detox from all the temporary pleasures that crowd you out.